Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. On this episode, we are resuming our discussion on the F-4 Phantom II, and we will be doing that with Tiger and Fingers. But right now, we got Sunshine on the line, and what would you think of the last episode, bud? Dude, loved it. I, it's stunning, though. So the Princeton grad there, Tiger, right? 3,000? 3,000 F-4 hours? And 30 Just in the F-4, and then, oh, by the way, he went on to fly the F-14. Yeah, holy cow, <laughs> and 35 years of active and reserve service, and then... Yeah, and then fingers with a uh, two thousand hours right in the backseat of the F four though. So just another amazing story, and I can't wait for the listeners to hear the story of how he got his call sign fingers. Well, it's not a great story, but now that it's over, we can all laugh about it. And he's certainly learned <laughs> he's how to got deal with it. Great yeah. attitude, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And on that note, Sunshine, I just want to comment that when I interview someone, I usually try to do just a little bit of editing to make everyone sound their best. Mm-hmm. So for 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 example, if someone says four ten times like I just did on purpose, <laughs> I cut about six of those out and I just make it, you know, it's like putting makeup on. You're already beautiful, but then you're more beautiful with makeup. So uh, but the point I'm trying to get to eventually here is that when it comes time for fingers to tell his story of the call sign and his imprisonment leading up to that. I don't do any editing. I felt like I would Mm -hmm. be doing a disservice to him and the story. And so if there are longer than normal pauses in your mind, that's how he normally speaks. And I didn't cut and pull those together. I just thought I owed that him dignity of just letting him tell that story. What do you think? Yeah, I think kind of preserving that sanctity of that such an amazing story. You know what I'm saying? Pretty crazy. So I think... Perfect to leave unedited, so absolutely. Okay, well then, why don't we just get to it? All right. Fingers in the back seat. What, did you have side controllers for the Rio, or did was there another set of flight controls, or was it interchangeable? Like in the F-18D and F, they can either configure it for a WIZO in that case, or an instructor pilot. What did the back seat of an F-4 have? Nothing. No, no controls. We no had, flight controls you, at you all? You had the... You had the uh, radar control and the um, no controls for flying the airplane. No, oh, it was okay. strictly well. The that's all the Navy Phantoms and Marines. Uh, the Air Force they build them with uh, sticks in the back seat too. Was there, there was a time they actually put pilots in the back they, instead of they dedicated were, right, right. radios. My yeah. my flight lead, my second tour was an exchange Air Force pilot, and he had had a whole first tour in the backseat of an F-4 in the Air Force. Oh, wow. And then he goes back to shore duty somewhere, and then he came back to the Navy, and, and now he gets to fly in the front seat <laughs> in another combat tour on wow. the ship. No kidding. Okay, that's no, crazy. No, we, we had no uh, no controls or anything back Well, there. I know the F-14 didn't either. So, no. John Ed, mm-hmm. when you went through training, your first flight was a, essentially a solo. I mean, I'm sure there was a pilot in the back, but he couldn't reach controls or anything? That's correct. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, okay. that's there are no two-seater F- or, or two Control, controls right. in the F-14. <laughs> The F four, uh, the the A, the A model had a, a, two, okay. a stick the in the A back. The A models had a stick in the back. Okay, and there were some and, of those in the and, training commands. And they were in the training command, okay. yeah. But uh, I think only a handful. I mean, maybe four fifty or sixty of them or something right. like that. All right. Now we were talking still about strengths. How about any weaknesses? Nobody ever likes to admit weaknesses of their baby on these interviews, but one is fairly obvious. Early F4s were pretty smoky. And the problem Mm -hmm. with smoky engines is it makes it relatively easy to gain an initial tally Mm -hmm. and then keep it in the visual arena. Uh, What else would you be willing? I mean, they fixed that. As did they? Yeah, they fixed it after the war. As did the, oh, after the war. Unfortunately. Uh oh. All right. Yeah. Smokeless engine did not come until after Vietnam was over. Sure. 
So for the folks on the ground, it's good for them too if oh, you're yeah, smoking that, you because they in, can see you. You'd have to go into burner, a men burner, to get rid of that smoke when you're going in, right. which is doing what? It's eating up your gas. Right. So, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off there. What was the smoke, by the way? And this is where I wish Sunshine was here. I'm sure he could tell me, but it's just unburned particulate from the fuels, basically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they figured out a way finally to chemically fix that or mm-hmm. different JP or something. All right. Any other? I, I think the, the afterburner would yeah. uh, would allow this would dissipate the smoke. So as Jack said, that was a common tactic. On the run end, you'd go to men burner, and the smoke would disappear. Yeah. But <laughs> you're now you know right. fifteen miles out of the merge, and you're in men burner. So mm-hmm. which means you got to manage your speed because and if you show up too fast, yeah. that's actually a liability, not an asset. I, I think that the the men burner concept worked. For only for the visual part. The rest of the, the rest of the, the yeah. advantages were disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, turning radius in in horizontal too was was a uh, another an other for the F four two. As that's why our fight was vertical. You right. Go up. Which didn't really come we, back to the F four until Top Gun came along. Right. That's right, as, right. As I read it. Okay. Because also, we could we could uh, you know with those engines. I mean, you could yeah. out you could out climb your opponent and mm. then turn back around. Yeah. Right. So. All right. So the horizontal turning, I think, was a disadvantage of it, too. Tiger, were you an LSO by any chance? I was not. Okay. Because I heard anecdotally that they could use the smoke as an idea of what the pilot was doing, at least in the daytime. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me at yeah. all. Because no, yeah. you I'm use the whole aircraft anyway in your ears and yeah. everything. So. The, uh, I think, the, from my perspective, one of the biggest disadvantages was the lack of fuel. Mm-hmm. I know that an hour 45 cycle on the ship, you're pressed, especially if you're coming back from a not an alpha strike, but any other mission that was mm-hmm. on a cycle, you were strapped. You were usually trick or treat at the ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, your, your first pass was you yeah. better get aboard or you're going to have to go tank. Right. 1.5. Because, yeah, you didn't have enough gas to, and, and I flew the F 14 and it was like, gosh, we've got twice the amount of gas in an engine that mm-hmm. burns half the amount that the Phantom did almost. And so it was like no big deal. Mm. But in the Phantom, you were always on the edge of perfect. And in order to get more gas, you'd have to carry the wing tanks or the center line. Right. I mean, and the wing tanks, that was, those were more drag and, and... But was that a standard configuration? And the F-18 deployed, you almost never took the tanks off, maybe for an air power demonstration, but otherwise you had at least two, sometimes three. And the two, and squad, the two squadrons I was in, the F-21, 161, our standard configuration was a centerline tank and, uh, you know, two sparrows and four sidewinders okay. for a fighter. fighter uh, and what did the F-4 carry internally for fuel? 13,400 pounds oh. internally and you know, centerline 17,000. Yeah. But my squadron, the crews before, carried three tanks, the whole cruise. And they finally said, why are we carrying three tanks? So they dropped the, the, the wing tanks mm. and they found out that it, the extra weight and fuel burn carrying yeah, those tanks didn't, right. didn't was, help me that much. It was a wash. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the centerline was the, was the, mm. was the configuration of, of uh, the standard configuration. Yeah. Tiger, when was your last flight in an F-4? Uh, in F4, yeah. November of 1984. So that's, what, 30-some-odd years ago? Yeah. You rattled off those fuel numbers like you just yeah. hopped out of the thing this morning. I love the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I, lots of things I've forgotten, uh, but some things... 
you know, some don't some stick with you. Yeah. You, you. You don't have careers like you gentlemen had and not walk away different. I mean, it's just, especially fingers with your story here, we're about to get to, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, I mean, I asked you the fuel and boom, you rattled it right off. That's, that's awesome. All like right. I said, fuel was a concern. Yeah, yeah was, for sure. And you know what? They always had a nag in the back seat asking you how much fuel we got. <laughs> so that, that was another advantage. Another I advantage think, of the multi-crew of, concept. You, Absolutely. It was kind of like flying with your wife. You was somebody <laughs> nag you all the time, <laughs> right? Yeah. Was that like a best practice for a Rio is <laughs> nag? Oh, dear me. All right. Well, where would the listener who maybe doesn't know or have lived the life that we led, obviously we know the F4 pretty well, but for the casual observer, where would they have seen the F4 either in, you know, everyday life or in Hollywood? What notoriety is the Everyday life would be the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds a few years ago when they both were flying. That was in the 70s. Back in the 60s and 70s. 69 to 74, I believe it was. And they were the... That was the only time both teams flew the flew exact the same, same kind airplane, of airplane, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe different models, but they both flew no, the yeah. F4. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we talked about this earlier. I, there's a movie, great movie, but the great Santini. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was mm-hmm. the story of a Marine F4. Okay. Uh, by yeah. a, I'm trying to think where else. Well, there's a lot of places around the, the uh, country that are on display at museums sure. or mm-hmm. up on posts. and mm-hmm. uh, like, like the one that, on the Midway you told like us about earlier. There, there yeah. are actually two on the Midway. Oh. Um one of them is configured as a bomber mode, and it's got the, the bombs on it to show okay. you what it could carry in bombs. And then the one that uh, I like to call the Midway Phantom was the one that I talked about earlier right. that we got down there, and it's painted up on one side with the VF-21 colors as that they had in, in 1965 when the first two MiGs of the war were shot down. Okay. And then on the starboard side is painted up in 161 colors, uh, which huh. uh, when the last MiG of the war was shot down in So the first January, and the last. So first and last. <laughs> so that represents the beginning and the end of the air war in Vietnam. Okay. Both by Phantoms flying off USS Midway. Okay. So kind of historic. Sure. Well, you were involved with a shoot down, were you not, Fingers? Yeah. Couple when, of when, when, <laughs> okay. When was, when was that? Well, the um, fun part one. Uh, the thrill of victory, so to speak. <laughs> that was uh, 23 May 1972. Okay, well, that's getting towards the end of the war. There's less than a year left before the yeah. folks and, came uh, home. We, uh, we had a section of uh, Phantoms, and we were on a MIGCAP mission going up um, to place ourselves between Kep and um, Haiphong, where the Alpha Strike was going in. Uh-huh. And uh, as soon as we crossed the beach up there, uh, we got a call from our controller out on the the uh, on red ground and said, gave us a vector it said uh rock river 100 is our, our call sign rock river is your call sign okay uh, rock river was a squadron's call sign and we were flying uh, bird number 100 rock river 100 your vector is uh 270 30 some miles something like that and uh, you have bandits so we started going and and my, my uh, pilot, Muggs McEwen, uh, which um, he's a whole story in himself. <laughs> yeah, we uh, can talk a lot about that. God <laughs> rest his soul. He's gone now. But okay. Um, so we we start we take an vector, and uh, he said to me, he said, Jack. He said, Did he say bandits? I said, yeah, I think so. He said, Call him and ask him. I said, Did you say bandits? Because bandit meant it's a confirmed MIG. You know, we used to get, you'd had a bogey or something like that. But right. if they say bandit, it was... Right, enemy. So I 
called back to the Red Crown. I said, uh, did you say Bandit? He said, Roger Bandit. He said, you're cleared to arm, cleared to fire. Wow. And so we're we're going in with a clear to fire. Hmm. Now, this was what the F-4 was designed to do. Perfect. That's right. Okay. <laughs> so we're going over, and, of course, we're in the B. And uh, we, we talked about what it doesn't like over land. It doesn't like over land. <laughs> so it, it, all the ground return and everything like that was hard as hell to, to sort out any contacts. And, and halfway into the merge, our wingman, uh, Rookie Rab and, and uh, Ken Crandall, Crandall comes up and said, uh, hey, I'm, I'm a lead nose. I just lost my radar. So we got one radar and two airplanes and we're going in there. So I'm searching, searching, searching. And and I can't find anything. And finally, we're getting closer. And I thought I had a, a contact, and I tried to lock it up. It wouldn't lock, wouldn't lock. But by that time, we were, I don't know, six or seven miles, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mug says, tally-ho, on the nose. What we he saw were two MiG-19s coming through. Okay. And, um, so of course, the closure rate was pretty quick. And they went right between us. We were mm-hmm. in combat spread. So a mile and a half apart. Mine, or so. A mile and a half, mile yeah. And uh, MiG-19s went screaming through, and uh, Mug said, uh, you know, cross-turn, we'll go high, you go low. We cross-turn right there, mm-hmm. and thinking that, you know, we had our fangs out, because two of our shipmates had just shot down two MiG-19s a week before in that same area. So we thought, oh, boy, we're going to get us some MiG-19s. <laughs> well, we screwed up. We didn't clear behind them like we should have. Ah. And... There were four MiG-17s in trail behind them. Red Crown they, didn't tell you this? No, they didn't see them because okay. they, were, they were low. And they, they didn't tell us. that We thought we were just going against two. And whether Red Crown ever knew it or not, I don't know. But So uh, their plan, which I confirmed when we went over to uh, Vietnam in 2016 and met one of those pilots in, in person, their plan was that it was a, a trap. 19s were the bait, mm. and we were supposed to turn on them, which we did. And then they were going to be behind us and shoot us down. Right. But they had neglected and leave enough nose-to-tail separation between the two elements. And instead of breaking between the two of them, we broke into the formation of the four big 17s. Oh, wow. So um, that's when the excrement hit the air conditioning system, as they say. <clears throat> and uh, All right. So we we started turning, and... and uh, Muggs started turning on one of the 17s, and about that time, one of the 19s had come back through the fight, so he thought that was a better one, and he was going to cough all that and get on the 19. And by this time, I'm out of the cockpit. I mean, the radar's, you right. know, I'm, I'm just checking. You're in a knife fight now with a We're group a of people. In a phone booth. Mm. So we're screaming, and I, I look back, and I see one at 8 o'clock, and um, he's starting to saddle in on us like this, and it makes 17. And um, you can't see my hands, folks, but I, I'm shooting my watch down right now. <laughs> but anyway, he's starting to close in on us and starting to shoot. And I said, uh, "Mugs, eight o'clock, track and shoot, and uh, do some of that pilot stuff." And he pulled off the 19, looked back, and he said, "Holy expletive!" <laughs> and uh, and the maneuver in that airplane so violently to break a, a track that we actually departed the airplane, oh. and it did a backflip. Ooh. Complete backflip. And I, you know, I'm fighting back there trying to, what in the hell are you doing up there? I'm trying to keep my eye on this guy back here, and, and we're going around. In a, oh, geez. And Muggs pulled out of it. He, got, he regained the, the control, 
pulled out of it, and lo and behold, Red 17 was up in front of us. And we took a shot at him, but we were out of, we, we didn't, out of zone or whatever, and didn't get it. So we turned and we got engaged with a couple more. We got another shot on another one, and he defeated the missile again, too. So we uh, were kind of feeling sorry for ourselves, you know, boy, here we've blown two shots and haven't got anybody. And that time, this time, I'm looking back at four o'clock, and another 17 is tracking us, and he's just coming up on us. And I see the, the uh, big old orange 37 millimeters start coming at us. Yikes. And I called it out to Muggs, and he looked back and let out another expletive of some kind. <laughs> Comrade. And started turning hard into him to break mm -hmm. a tracking solution. When he did that, the MiG-17 just pulled up, and all we saw was his nose, underside of his, his nose. Hmm. Muggs had been part of the exploitation program, uh, have, have done or have, 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 have drill. Mm -hmm. And he had actually flown one of the 17. Really? So when he saw that, he immediately realized that guy couldn't see us because you couldn't see over that nose. Sure. So he came out, he just went to idle, went full stick forward, and we just zero G'd. And, we, and he kept turning, and we're zero G and away from him until pretty soon he starts wiggling his wing looking for us. By that time, we had built enough separation. The mugs came back around, pulled up behind him like that, and we got a good tone, and that was our first kill. No kidding. And uh, so we looked across the circle. In the meantime, while I'm talking about all this, what we were doing, our little dance up there, uh, <laughs> Rookie and Ken had gone low, and they couldn't get, they had a MiG-17 or two tracking them. Fly, they were actually flying at treetop level trying to wow. shake these guys. And we we saw what was going on across the circle after we got our kill. And Hugs uh, said, uh, you know, drag him east, west, whatever it was. And so he kept dragging him over and we came, did barrel roll behind and came, got behind the other MiG mm -hmm. and shot him off rookie in Ken's tail. And uh, that was our second kill of the day. And uh, by that time, we were we were talking about fuel earlier, right? Uh, right. We were kind of <laughs> sucking on fuel. So we joined up and uh, got the hell out of Dodge and got out and had a tanker waiting for us. We tanked and came back and landed. And so that was our uh, thrill of victory. Wow. To, uh, what were the missiles employed? Uh, sidewinders. Sidewinders, yeah. okay. Yeah. And the time between the first and the second, I mean, seconds, 30 seconds, maybe? Oh, yeah, I, but the whole fight probably didn't last 10 minutes. I mean, uh, it was, I mean, at those speeds, mm -hmm. I would say probably 10, 12, maximum 15 minutes. I, I don't even think it would last no, that long. I, I wouldn't yeah, think. I'd be surprised if it was that long, yeah. No, hmm. because, you know, it, it just it happened so quickly. Uh, right. And uh, so we uh, came back and... Landed and that's when I thought, no oh, hell, we just been through a big dogfight. Mugs come back and of course he's gonna, okay, all right, we're gonna do a shit hot flyby. <laughs> and he tells rookie, okay, you go starboard side, I'm going on the port side. We're gonna go in, and we're going down, and we're flying along and the speed of heat. And I'm looked out like that, and I'm looking at the port side of the ship's uh, flight deck. Right at eye level? At uh, <laughs> canopy level. And I said, Muggs, if you kill us here, I'm I'm never going to speak to you. <laughs> but we went up, popped up, did a right. worldly do, and came back and landed. Mm. And went to the ready room to tell everybody how great we were. But uh, that was uh, 
pretty exciting day. I guess. Well, that is a pretty exciting sea story. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let me ask you this. If the radar had cooperated, was your training and mindset such that had you had a lock at 10 or 12 or more miles, you would have fired a sparrow at long Oh, yeah, because we, yeah. we had cleared a fire. Right. They were right. said banjo. Which is very unusual. Yeah. Right. Very unusual. Right. Mm -hmm. That was my point. But we just could not. As a matter of fact, uh, we had the, the um, also the, what do you call it? Pilot lock-on. Pilot lock-on uh, mm -hmm. capability, too. And I couldn't get a lock as far out. And as we got closer, most tried that, too. And it still wouldn't lock on. Mm. So, yeah, if, if we didn't got a good lock on, we'd have let the sparrow go. Sure. But as, you know, at the closure rates you're talking about, right. uh, you know, the the opportunity is very, right. very narrow. And for where you were, were, were ground threats not an issue? And was that because of either where you were or because obviously there was MiGs there, too? Well, the whole fight actually occurred damn near right over Cap Airfield. Which is where the AAA training well, it would said. be like having the dogfight over Miramar. <laughs> and matter of fact, remember that one MiG seventeen pilot that said he was on he was on he watch. Was, he, yeah, he was on the ground watching the whole watch, fight. And he said he was on the ground. He watched the whole fight. Okay. So I mean that's so it was interesting. So you went back in two thousand sixteen and met some of your former adversaries? Yeah, John and I were part of uh know, eleven of us. Eleven, yeah. Uh, well, what was that Navy, like? Marine, and, and Air Force guys. Yeah? And we went back and we met, uh, there were about 20 of them, I think. 20 Vien former North Vietnamese, mm -hmm. yeah. now Vietnamese pilots. Vietnamese sure. pilots. Sure. And um, we uh, got to meet them. It was, it was kind of uh, strange in a way, but right. I mean, uh, Colonel Lamb, the, the one uh, uh, MiG pilot, 17 pilot, as I said, he was the first one that I saw at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. He was the one I got to talk to. There are two of, out of the six pilots, there were two of them were still alive, both 17 pilots. And uh, one of them lived down this, in uh, Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, I guess they call it now. Right. And he didn't come up there. And I heard, learned from Colonel Lamb that uh, that day I learned that the first guy that we shot down died that day. He did not survive the ejection. We Both of the mix we shot, they ejected. Right. So we assumed that they lived, but Colonel Lamb told me that uh, the pilot, the first, our first kill, was a real kill. Mm -hmm. uh, the guy did not survive the ejection, and the other guy did, but he was killed in a dogfight later in the war. And uh, the two MiG seven, the two MiG nineteen pilots had also deceased, were also deceased. So, out of the six, only two of them were alive, and I got to meet one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, we sat down at the table, and we had to, you know, just like we came out of Whiskey 291, yeah. came back to debrief our fight. And, you know, 43 years later, and we're remembering it the same way. And I said, well, it was 8 o'clock, and I said, my pilot, we, we departed the airplane and did a backflip. And he said, yeah, I know. He said, that was me. He says, I thought you were gone. He didn't and think he says, he'd recover it? No, he didn't. He thought wow. he would. And he said, and then he looked in the mirror and he said, oh, my God, you guys are behind <laughs> me. And he said, I saw the missile come off and I, mm. you know, I defeated it. So, I mean, that was, yeah. but he confirmed, I, I asked him that, uh, I said, we surmised that we were supposed to fly in front of your formation going after the 19s and you would be on our six, right? He said, yeah. And then he said that they admitted that they had screwed up, but they hadn't left enough. Yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, it was huh. kind of a... Yeah. I mean, so let me ask you, 
these are former adversaries. I mean, theoretically, mm-hmm. if you were foot soldiers, you could have been fighting face to face. Now, of course, it's a long time since then. Was it cordial, professional? Was there was there any not distrust, but hidden agendas? I mean, how was that meeting a former adversary? That has to be somewhat strange. I would it think was, uh, it was very cordial. Would yeah. you say, John? I mean, I, I, there is no animosity. No, it's interesting. I think the Vietnamese today. Uh, it's still a communist country, communist mm-hmm. government, right. but it's a capitalist society. And the reason they, they're doing so well is because of capitalism, not because of communism. Mm-hmm. And I think those former fighter pilots recognize that, even though they are beholden to the communist government, mm-hmm. uh, they recognize the benefits of what has happened to their country since that war. There were 30 million people in Vietnam in 1972. There are 90 million people there now. So most of the people in Vietnam have no recollection of right. the war. Mm-hmm. So the, except the people we were talking to lived it. Right. And and I thought they were uh, very gracious, even the ones that had friends killed by right. American pilots. Mm-hmm. But we had the same thing, too. We had, you know, yeah. there's sure. no animosity on our, on our part. Yeah. It, was a, it was a very interesting visit. But also, I think that one of the things that impressed me is that we went out to Kep Airfield on that trip, and they, they shut down the base. They didn't operate any airplanes, and we couldn't go on the base. We were off the base for about an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next year, we invited the, the Vietnamese in a reciprocal agreement to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And we, when they came to San Diego during the Blue Angels weekend. Yep. So we take 25 Vietnamese pilots out to the Blue Angels weekend at Miramar. And they walk on the tarmac. And there's the F-22. There's the F-35. There's the F-18. Mm-hmm. There's every airplane in our inventory that they can go up and touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's the difference between a communist-controlled very controlled government. And we got them to be guests in the uh, chalet mm-hmm. of the commanding officer of the base, a nice chalet with food and drink and everything right. like that. I mean, they were they were over the moon. Wow. I don't, they'd never seen an air, air show before, I guess, because I don't think they do them over there. You know? <laughs> I but, guess uh, they don't need to recruit people into the no, aviation. They, they just if, tell them if, if that's they want what they're going to do. In aviation, they'll that's say, right. you're going to be a pilot. That was, that's what they did. <laughs> well, but I think I think part of that, too, and in, in this is in my opinion, too, is that, you know, in the air war, we were fighting another airplane. It's not like you were on right. the ground grappling with them in hand-to-hand combat right. or something like that. It's a different atmosphere mm-hmm. in that. And I and I think the aviators the world over, I mean, we're we're pretty much all the same. We're kind of have the same mindset and everything right. like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was, wasn't anything personal about it. You did your duties yeah, on they both were, sides. And, yeah. and they, were, mm-hmm. they were defending their country and we were doing what we were you know, right. ordered to do. And... So it was, uh, there was more of a, I don't want to, this is kind of a cliche maybe, but almost like a a, a form of chivalry where, mm-hmm. you know, like the knights mm-hmm. of, of old where they respected, well, look at the German um, pilots and they were, and met their adversaries, United States for, and those things went well. And mm-hmm. not so much the Japanese, but yeah. so, no, I, I found it a very rewarding, uh, I almost didn't go and Kathy made me go. <laughs> Kathy and, being your wife? Yeah, my wife. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But she said, no, you're, you need to you go. Gotta go do it. It's and probably I, good closure, I would think. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm not sure what closure is, but it was, it was fun. Okay. And to meet these people. And, and I think, you know, we were treated, uh, I mean, everywhere we went, mm. uh, the, the population, you know, all Americans, you know, and they, they wanted to talk to us and right. everything. So, yeah. 
Well, they say time heals all wounds. It's a bit cliche, but, uh, you know, yeah. certainly that has been to our benefit. I mean, gosh, the Carl Vinson just had a port call in Vietnam recently, the first carrier in a long, long time. So, you know, we're friends with the Japanese. We're friends with the Germans. I think bygones can be bygones. Yeah, and uh, after we had, you know, debriefed our fight and all that stuff, and uh, Colonel Lamb and I start talking, you know, what about your personal life? And, and I said, you know, what about you, family? And he said, yeah, he's married. And, of course, we're doing all this through an interpreter, you know. Mm. We're shooting our watch down to the languages through an interpreter. <laughs> but um, he said uh, he had uh, he had three daughters. He retired as a colonel. Okay. And I retired as a captain, same rank. Right. He has three daughters. I have three daughters. I said grandchildren. He had f- seven grandchildren. I have five grandchildren. We talked about that. So I, I laughed and I said, uh, well, uh, we beat you in the air, Colonel. I said, but you beat us in the Grand Kansas Department. <laughs> And he laughed. He thought that was so funny. And uh, then I told him, uh, I, I told him, I said, well, you know, uh, later after our dogfight, I said, um, three months later, I said, I was shot down by a surface air missile. And I said, I became a prisoner of war over in Wallow Prison there, the Hanoi Hilton, as we called it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he hadn't noticed it, but uh, I held up my left hand like this. And I said, and this is, this is my souvenir from the war if you will and you can't see that on this microphone here but I my left thumb was amputated in prison when I was a prisoner of war so I came back I came back from the war a little short-handed so to speak and uh, so he looked at that and his eyes got big he reached out and he took my hand in both of his hands and looked me right in the face and through the interpreter and he very sincere he says I am so sorry for the suffering you experienced in my country. Mm. I mean, just, I mean, just so. Human to human. Yeah. Right. In other human words, yeah, there's so many things we may not agree on, but you still suffered and yeah. it was in his country and he was just connecting with you as a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. I found that kind of touching myself. I mean, well, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting, well, no, we've gone deep. <laughs> <laughs> we went very deep. Well, but I, I think that's almost, I mean, I say this on every episode. We could obviously go on and on and on about the F4, but I think we've covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover. Let me just ask you this, though. In 30 seconds, you know, they call it an elevator speech. How would you summarize the F4? And uh, Tiger, we'll start with you. I mean, if someone came up to you and said, I've never heard of the F4 before, what is it? I think McDonnell Douglas did a wonderful, McDonald at the time, did a wonderful job designing an airplane that met specifications and exceeded those specifications. And it turned out it could do a lot more than than what it was originally designed Mm. to do because it was well-designed. It had robust engines. It had robust uh, weapon systems that could be developed and improved upon. And to me, that's the the secret to the airplane, I think, is that it was not not a – a one-stop shop. It could do everything. Mm. And even though it wasn't initially designed for that. And, and quite frankly, the, the best part about that airplane were the engines, I think, because mm. they were unbelievable, unbelievably solid, 3,000 hours, and I never came back single engine, no not kidding. once. No kidding. There are so many military aircraft throughout history. Many of them are good aircraft. Of course, there are some poor ones too. But John Ed, would you be willing to call the F-4 Phantom II a great aircraft? Absolutely a great yeah. aircraft. It had its faults. Mm-hmm. Almost every airplane has some kind of a fault. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine an airplane that did as many things as well as it did for its its era. Mm. Yeah. Sure. And Fingers, what's your thoughts on the F-4? 
Well, I, I think uh, I'd place it in the iconic uh, classification, mm. like a P-51 Mustang or, you know, any of those like that. And mm -hmm. for its for the reasons that not only did John just talk about, but here it was thrown into, it, it fought in a war, you know, it was not designed to do what it did. Mm -hmm. And yet every mission that it was given, it did well. It might not have been the best, but it was good enough to be, an I, I would call it an iconic airplane. Sure. Excellent. Well, I want to thank both of you gentlemen for your time this evening to come into the studio and speak about the F-4 Phantom II. It's been very interesting and informative discussion. Thank you very much. Before we let you go, however, we always end the interview with how you got your call sign. Because call signs, let's face it, for us, <laughs> we know that they're fun and there's some good ones out there. But for the listening audience who didn't live the lives that we led, they like to know how we got them. So uh, John Kerr, John Ed, as you're also known, but Tiger, why don't we start with you? How did you come up with Tiger? How did someone come up with Tiger for you, more to the point? Well, it's usually someone comes up with a call sign, especially if you do something dumb. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I guess, I hadn't done anything dumb yet. <laughs> uh, so I had a classmate from college that was my roommate on the ship. And uh, we both were from Princeton. So Princeton's uh, old Nassau. Mm -hmm. So he he wanted to have the call sign Nassau. So he kind of lobbied for that. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I, you know, we were the Princeton Tiger, so a Tiger would be a good one for me, I think. Well, it turns out he tried Nassau out and the controllers wouldn't, didn't understand what he was saying, and they thought, are you calling yourself asshole or, or what? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounded like over the radio. Sure. So that one didn't go. So, it's, uh, But Tiger still stuck with me. So, Well, Tiger's an easy one on the radio. It's got yeah, the right yeah, phonemes. Yes, yes. All right, fair enough. And so, yeah, like you said, you never did anything sufficiently. I didn't do anything that dumb. I did a lot of dumb things, but I guess nothing that, that would stick as That's a call right. sign. Nothing that would make him change it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. And now for you, Fingers, we've kind of already touched on it. I mean, you went over with 10 digits, you came back with nine, and we didn't even talk, by the way, about your, as you put it, what'd you call it? Unaccompanied? Unaccompanied shore duty. All right. Well, so, gosh, I don't know how to broach this without making the episode another half hour longer, but I want to do justice to it. Tell us what happened that day and some highlights of your stay and how long you were there. Okay. Well, what you want is a thumbnail sketch, huh? Wah, wah. <laughs> Okay, the quick quick and dirty is uh, three months after um, Muggs and I got to Miggs, he was ordered out of the squadron, and he came back, and he took over Top Gun. Okay. He, he was my CO at Top Gun. All right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, when it was stood up as a squadron, right? Right. And uh, so I got another pilot. His replacement was a guy we all know and loved, uh, Mike Dudu Doyle. And Mike and I were flying uh, together on 25th of August, 1972, Ironically, on a same mission, a MIGCAP mission. Okay. And ironically, in the same airplane that Muggs and I shot the MIGs down in. Wow. And ironically, on our 13th mission together. <laughs> uh, we just crossed the beach uh, and going to our cap station, and we got taken under fire by, you know, several surface-to-air missile batteries. And um, so we, instead of fighting MIGs, we started fighting telephone poles. And uh, successfully dodged a couple of them. And I was remember I was looking behind us at one that we had just uh, defeated. And one went off over the cockpits, one that we didn't see, which is, I guess that's always mm. the way it is. Yeah. And uh, next thing I knew, I'm sitting in the back seat, bleeding all over myself with my hand. Uh, the shards of the 
the canopy and the shrapnel had I was had my hand up in the handhold like that fighting the G's and, okay. and operating the the uh, ECM gear down here on the console, and um, so I yelled at my at uh, Mike. I said, "Hey, can we get to the water?" And I looked forward, and he uh, he was obviously not flying that airplane. He was kind of slumped forward on, and we were about oh, three thousand feet or something like that, about four hundred knots or something going down. And I realized that, uh, you know, he wasn't flying that airplane. So I reached down with my good hand, ejected us both from the airplane. Um, next thing I knew, I'm hanging in a chute uh, over a rice paddy coming down. Uh, tried to get my radios and make phone, a uh, radio call to our wingman and let him know that I was alive, which was important. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I couldn't reach my radios. And uh, when I hit the wind, screen, wind stream uh, on the ejection, uh, my arms just flailed like a rag doll because I was one-handed and I didn't have the curtain. So dislocated both elbows, pushed them about halfway up inside of each arm. And uh, and the people in the ground are shooting at me. I hear the bullets going by, but I'm, I'm in the shoot not very long, thank God. And uh, they, they were bad shots, hopefully, I guess, <laughs> or both. Landed in a rice paddy. They came along, dragged me up, and stripped me down of all my gear. Mm. And, uh, and then uh, after dark that night, they took me down to the main road, turned me over to the um, uniform uh, military, mm -hmm. threw me in the back of the truck, and took me in Hanoi. And I uh, was in a Wallow prison. I was in a, a, a room for, oh, I guess it was uh, 10 by 10, 12 by 12, something like that, you know, just... Uh, a chair, a stool, and a uh, table, and a waste can over in the corner. And uh, they threw me on the floor and walked away. And I'd say maybe an hour or so later they came back, jerked me up, on, made me sit on the stool, and the interrogator came in and started questioning me, sitting on the chair and the table. Name, rank, cylinder, and date of birth. Mm -hmm. That's all I can tell you. It's like, well, you got to tell us more. you got to tell us what ship you're from, what, uh, blah, blah, all this stuff. Right. I kept saying, I can't do that, Geneva Convention, Code of Conduct, blah, blah, blah. And um, it went on for, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, something like that. He got up, walked out, the guard kicked me off stool back on the floor. And that routine went on then for the next three days, Gosh. around the clock. Every few hours they'd come in on the stool, a question. It wasn't always the same interrogator. I mean, mm -hmm. they had a watch bill. I was on watch all the time. <laughs> and... Um, at one point there, to, toward the end of there, I was, I mean, I was a hurting puppy. And uh, I, I begged, for, I said, please, I need medical attention. I'm, you know, I'm hurting. My arms are starting to discolor from lack of circulation. And my hand, well, at the shoot-down site, uh, a kind Vietnamese lady came up and she had a, a like a first aid kit you might carry in your car. And she tucked what was, my, you know, my thumb was severed partially, but... She tucked it in the palm of the hand and wrapped it and wrapped it around and around and around to keep it from flopping around mm. and then the blood soaking into it. So I looked at that. I didn't know what the hell was underneath there. Mm. And so one of the one of the interrogators at one point when I was begging for, for uh, medical attention, he said, no, you are not cooperating with us. He said, uh, you're dying. We will let you die unless you cooperate with us. You understand? And... So I got the picture, and after that session, I said, I, you know, this is 
was really internal conflict. I mean, a code of conduct. And, uh, of course, he's telling me I'm dying and I've got a wife and three kids at home. And, uh, you know, of course, I don't want to die, but uh, I want to kind of kind of anyway. So I came up with a plan that next time they start asking me this, I would tell them lie about what squadron I was with and all that stuff. And anything that I figured was of military importance, I would lie about. Mm. Next thing came in. And anyway, that that seemed to satisfy him after I started answering more questions. Uh, it was almost, it wasn't anything that I had that was any value to them. It mm. was, they just wanted to let you know that they could make you do whatever they right. wanted you to do. And and that was true of all the torture uh, throughout there. And uh, so after that, they came in and blindfolded me and took me out through a series of gates. I'm sure it was outside the prison to some medical hospital or something. I guess probably the same one John McCain was treated in. And um, took me into a room, operating room, and strapped me down on the operating table and held me in place and with a few of his... Uh, Physician's assistants, I'll call them, held me down and had my head. Surgeon came in, took off the gauze, and looked at it like that, took a scalpel, and amputated my thumb. No, no an anesthesia. No just... anesthesia, no, oh, no, no may I, or very poor bedside manner. <laughs> and um, after that, they, they stuffed it with, you know, and wrapped it up, and then unstrapped me and took me to another room and took a couple of fluoroscopes, as you call it, of my elbows. You know, this fluoroscope is kind of like an early early precur uh, precursor to her uh, before x-rays. Mm -hmm. And it's just very, look, held him up to the light, looked at him for a minutes, put him down, and his physician's assistant sat me in a chair against the wall and held me in place, and he came over and, put his foot in my chest, <laughs> took my arms and started pulling on them until they snapped back in place. <laughs> wrapped, uh, wrapped him up in some rudimentary splints, uh, blindfolded me, put me in a truck, took me back, uh, and I spent then the next uh, a total of 30 days in uh, isolation until mm -hmm. they caught me t communicating with some other prisoners that were in cells around me. Mm -hmm. And then they put me in with the, a group of those guys of big cell about uh, 35 or 40 of us in one of these big long cells and uh, I stayed with that group throughout the whole thing until we came back with the last group of uh, prisoners in uh, 29 March 1973 so last in last out last in last out okay. that was that was our plan I mean that right. was a, a rule first in first out right and so uh yeah I was I was lucky I People say, hey, you're crazy. How can be lucky being a POW? I was only there seven months. <sighs> if I'd have been shot down on my first cruise in 1966 off Coral Sea, I'd have been there seven years. <sighs> so seven years, seven months, That's I'll take that trade off any day. So I'm sure that, that didn't make it. it easy day in and day out, especially with their some of their methods to get answers, but still. No, well, that was, that was the only, uh, uh, which I would classify as torture. That I experienced uh, because I, you know, I got there during the mm -hmm. during the holiday season. All the systematic torture and the ropes and all that stuff that the the fogs had gone through uh, was pretty much, you know, gone. They were individual cases like mine where they they did it, but mm -hmm. uh, it, as a as a systematic thing, it, it stopped. So it was, uh, yeah, I was wow. fortunate. I came home and what was got put the... back together and got back to flying. And, 
What was the disposition of your pilot? Mike didn't make it. Um, his remains came back 13 years after we did, mm. and we he's buried in Arlington. We buried him in Arlington. Mm. And uh, so um, I talked to his brother, who Jack Doyle, who is also a real F4 real myself, like myself, at the funeral. And mm. uh, Jack told me that the, the forensic pathologists at Hawaii who look at all the remains when they come back right. – um, indicated that uh, he was probably either dead when I got us out of the airplane or he probably didn't last much longer because of the the trauma to the, the skull and all that stuff. Because, mm. you know, as a phantom, you guys, pilots, you, you're much more exposed than we were in the back. You're sitting there with all that canopy and everything. And, you know, we had to, we were in a, a bunker back there. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't take as much uh, of the the brunt of the uh, missile like he did. Huh. So anyway, so Mike's, uh, he's in Arlington right now. All right. Well, God bless him and his family. Yeah. So uh, it's hard to make light and try to have fun with a conversation after a story like that. <laughs> Thank you, Fingers. No, but what I want to touch on is that you made it flying again, and then some crass group of people decided to call you Fingers? <laughs> yeah. The, the J. It's called fighter pilots. <laughs> well, I, well, my, my call sign up till, till that point, and mm -hmm. the squadron it was hung on me in uh, VF-21 when I first joined the squadron there. And my, my last name is Inch. Right. And um, you know, most people pr pronounce it Inch, but it's Inch you know, in German. But anyway, so it was a... Um, E-N-S-C-H. So they, they hung an I-T on the end of it, and I was known as, hey, and shit, and shit, and shit, and shit. <laughs> so, yeah, what you know, right. the more... The, Fingers is better. <laughs> the more you fight it, the, you know, the yeah. stronger it gets. So wow. when I took over, as I, oh, after I got back on flight status, after nine months of put, getting put back together at Balboa mm -hmm. Hospital, and I convinced them I could still do everything in the back seat that I needed to to fly... If I'd been a pilot, I'd been. I never would have gone flying because mm. couldn't have put speed brakes out for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so, uh, but uh, they gave me back uh, flight status, and my first uh, assignment was out Top Gun. They were going to send me to to. Uh, that was in January of '74. I was nine months in the hospital and got released. Uh, and the Bureau said, well, you're going to write me orders that September to go to PG school and get a master's degree. Postgraduate school, okay. Postgraduate school in Monterey, school in Monterey California. California, yeah. Yep. Well, you know, I don't know that. But anyway, so Muggs said, well, send him out here to Top Gun and, you know, we can put him to work. Uh, he'll be, you know, SLJO. We'll give him a special project or whatever. And do, do, do. So I went out there and... Um, uh, about a week or two after I'd been there, the XO then, Jerry Swatsky, I walked in one morning and Jerry was taking a, God rest his soul too, uh, he's gone with now. Anyway, he had a box and he was taking all his personal stuff in the XO's office and packing it up. And I said, hey, Jaguar, what the hell are you doing? Where are you going? He said, I quit. I said, what? He said, yeah, he said, I can't take it anymore. He said, Jerry had just, he had just gotten married recently i mean okay. and he was he was a, a navcat not a navcat he was an ocan he was a guy who had no college or here college something like that a navcat you know where sure 
So he was trying to get his uh, his degree at going to school at night and his marriage. And then, you know, and uh, Top Gun is not, as you all know, mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty consuming. It's not an eight to five job. I mean, <laughs> no. you're when you're in there preparing your your lessons and uh, flying two or three times a day and all that stuff. So uh, Jerry got it was he wanted out. So he called Muggs and said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. So he walked out, and I'm standing there flabbergasted. And, you know, a little while later, Muggs came in. And I said, hey, what the hell's going on? Jerry just left. And he says, he says yeah. He says, you're the XO until you, you go to PG school. Oh, shit, okay. <laughs> so I became the XO at Top Gun. Okay. And, uh, of course, you know, the JOs, and uh, I was a lieutenant commander. You know, Top Gun in those days, right, it, it, we were kind of, Navy's answer to uh, McHale's Navy, I think, you know, two lieutenant commanders, a CO and an XO, and, and the rest of them a bunch of hard-charging lieutenant JOs right. that, you know, ir- irreverent bastards. Anyway, <laughs> so they couldn't have an XO with the name of Inchian. So they had a contest to name the new XO. Uh-huh. And there were, some of them were Hang Nine and this <laughs> and that and other <laughs> they took a boat and they came up with fingers and so they started calling me fingers. Okay. And that stuck from then on. So anyway, it's so well, I that was uh you know. So that then I I spent two and a half years there because we were over at the O Club. What happened to PG school? Well, that's I'll get to that. Oh. We're, we're, <laughs> I've been there a few months and I've coming in and uh we were over at the old club uh, and sitting there with uh, Captain Scotty Lamoureux, who was confit at the time, and Muggs and I were sitting a beer. And uh, he said, uh, how do you like, uh, I think Muggs had something to do with it, but anyway. And Lamoureux says to me, he says, uh, well, Fingers, how do you like uh, being an excellent doctor? I said, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm flying, getting a couple flights a day in backseat of T-38s and, and uh, A-4. And anyway... I said, oh, this is cool. And he said, well, you like that, huh? And I said, yeah, it's come to an end, though. I said, I'm, the Bureau's going to send me to PG school in September. You want to go to PG school? And I said, you know, you, you're supposed to say, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, well, man, I'd much rather be flying. And he says, how would you like to be uh, do a full tour as an exo with Tom Gun? And I said, well, yeah, I'd, that'd be cool. I can cabin, but I said, I don't... <laughs> I don't write the orders. He said, oh, okay, well, we'll see about that. So pretty soon, a day or two, I got to set orders. As <laughs> stay there? Stay there and All then right. go to PG school. Okay. So I ended up in there. So Wow. That was cool. Well, golly. It's timing, timing, timing. <laughs> Fingers, that is an amazing story from start to finish, and I'm sure you have more, but in the interest of those who might be sitting in their cars waiting to go into work because their commute is over and they're <laughs> listening to us, I think we should probably wrap this up. Yeah. I want to thank both of you for your, if my math is correct here, over 65 years of combined service to this nation, including almost a year in another country in austere conditions. And over 5,000 flight hours in our subject of the day, the F-4 Phantom II. Gentlemen, this has been an honor to sit down with you and discuss. And uh, John Ed, I'll just uh, turn it over to you. If you have any parting shots, I want to thank you for being here. No, uh, I'd like to thank you for what you do, though. I think it's, uh, I've listened to some of the podcasts mm-hmm. now that I've, I've, after I've met you, and uh, it's a treat. 
and uh, yeah. I'd like to see this keep keep going. Well, with guests like you, I think it will, because the listeners out there, if I may speak for them, a lot of them would have loved to have done what we've done. Maybe not everything you did, Fingers. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, life gets in the way. They don't have the eyes. Something happens. And they're living vicariously through us. So thanks for sharing your story with them. Sure. Fingers, I'll let you uh, wrap it up if you got any parting shots. Well, I just I second uh, what he just said is what you're doing here. I've listened to a couple of them, too. And, you know, they, this is important. I mean, we're, whether we like it or not, we're part of naval aviation history. Mm. And uh, if we don't tell these stories, we don't get this out to the generations coming up, they don't learn from our successes and our mistakes. Mm. They are destined to do some of the same things, too. So I think what you're doing is, is a wonderful thing. And, and it's, you know, and it's, it's so... Uh, Casual. I, I mean, I'm, I'm having a good time here just talking. You know, it's, it's like sitting sitting around the the old club or the, and even have a an adult uh, and a refreshment. A refreshment. Yeah, well, I didn't bring enough, and that's probably the biggest no, reason no. we need to quit. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both very much, and I look forward to this episode airing. I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy it. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. All right. Cool. Holy cow, dude! So May twenty third. It was amazing to hear that shoot-down story out of fingers, right, with the uh, section of 19s and the division of 17s and how they bro- basically broke turn. His section, right, broke turn into, if that's the uh, past mm-hmm. participle or past tense anyway, into the division, shooting down those two 17s with the, the winders. Pretty impressive. And then how about the fact that they met up in 2016 with 20 of the former NVA pilots and they got all the details on that bait and trap, I guess, tactic. Right. So I thought that was kind of cool. I- I, yeah, I can't imagine. Of course, I've never been in a, a skirmish or combat like mm-hmm. these gentlemen no. have. But to, but to do that and and then go later and face your former enemy, I mean, talk about reconciliation at its finest. And, and the fact that they were all so professional and cordial and genuinely interested in each other's families, uh, that is, that's just beautiful, man. Yeah, it really was. And then um, also loved how when you guys went through the variations earlier in the first segment, you talk about the F4S with the AUG-10, right, and the smokeless motors, mm-hmm. maneuver slats, the high thrust. And uh, so there's smokeless motors Kind of touching on that a little bit, the dirty engines, right? So with the smokeless, yep. the smokeless motors, and thanks, yeah, sorry I couldn't be there for that discussion, dude. But uh, what you notice out of like B-52s and some of the older jets that have engine nacelles or en- you know engines hanging off their wings, that dirt actually comes because uh, the engine's running cold, but that's on purpose because they, a lot of them, not the J-79s for the F-4, but they would actually inject water into the engine itself to keep different uh, components cool enough so that they wouldn't, yeah, because they had a basically material science issues, if you will, or, or manufacturing issues. So the cooler it ran, the less would actually be completely burned in the carbon chain, right? And just as you put very well in the interview, you'd have these part- this particulate that would come out the back, and it would usually have condensation nuclei and pieces of water coming out the back too. So you get kind of thick. So not only would it be black, it would be thick black smoke. So that's the reason why they had the dirty motors. But then I think he mentioned when you go into min, min blower, right? Min afterburner, right. It, yep. it was just hot enough. And the fuel mixture was just such that it actually had more complete combustion and it had less dirty exhaust. So, so you did it, you did it well without me, dude. So bravo. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
every once in a while the blind squirrel finds a nut, right? So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe the uh, F4 carried water, but we have no. recorded the interview for the B-52, and the listeners will soon learn that it did. And so, yeah, oh, that's a great explanation. And, yeah, I mean, gosh, Sunshine, that was just one of many things we talked about on this episode. I mean, the creation of Top Gun, like yes. we've already talked about, mm-hmm. the Vietnam, both then and now, being a POW, the shoot down, yeah. the shot down, yeah. the end of dogfighting, question mark, you know, uh, yep. uh, just, wow. And, oh, and by the way, we talked about the F4 Phantom, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We did, didn't we? Snuck it in there at the oh, end. Yeah, oh, that's that right. So, Great episode. Well, there's a couple other uh, hanging chads. We, um, I, I had mentioned the F-14's TCS television camera system. I think what I was thinking there, Sunshine, was the infrared search and track oh, or the first yeah. on the F-14D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, yeah. So so, yep. so the TCS is not IR, right? It's just EO, electro-optical? Correct. Visible mm-hmm. wavelength? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Nice. And then uh, when Fingers was talking about getting an F-4 for the Midway, yeah. we didn't really mention, but he is a docent, docent, I never know how to pronounce this, docent, I guess, uh, yeah. on the Midway. Yeah. So he was involved with getting the aircraft on there. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. And he still does it. He's still a docent today, right? Uh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So so folks in San Diego visiting or living otherwise, you know, roll over there and ask for fingers, or at least look for the gentleman in the red jacket <laughs> with obviously nine fingers. <laughs> Hang nine. That was an awful attempt. No, dude, that was, that's, dude, that's so naval aviation. Oh, we are so thick is. skinned, or at least you yep. got to be thick skinned. I love right. it. Absolutely love it. So. Yep. Yeah. Okay, a couple others. Uh, Turkey, the country, not the person, uh, <laughs> although I'm sure he would love to, uh, yeah. is still flying the F-4, according to my research. And yes. Sunshine, what did you find to school me on the F-35 costing? Because they were taking a guess at it, but I think they underestimated quite a bit. Yeah, they did. And then, dude, the thing is, uh, I'm sorry, I got to go with the test pilot answer again. But when you figure in costs, you have non-recurring costs, which would be the R&D, the research and development. Right. And that, that is going to kind of get spread like peanut butter across the entire inventory. Mm. Now, so, so if you decrease the inventory, then that spread like peanut butter starts to build up more on each plane. So, so what will happen is you have this movie number based on how many assets are actually purchased or I should say manufactured. So anyway, all that aside... I'd say a good rule of thumb is 85 million. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. And that's what, close to triple an F-18 and probably about double a Super Hornet. So that's a lot of money, but it's supposedly a very capable aircraft. And to uh, believe it was Griffin's earlier question, we definitely need to get that one featured here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Uh, Your old buddy, uh, who was it? Uh, Skosh. He would have been a great yeah. candidate having flown all of them, but maybe we can find someone else to get on the show just because we haven't done a second uh, visit yet from anybody, but maybe we could bring yeah. Skosh back. And good old Skosh, actually, he's going places in the Air Force, dude. So he oh, got good for him. sucked. Yeah, he got sucked up to what we call a data mask position. So basically Ooh. a super secret squirrel thing. So he's uh, he, he's out of pocket right now. But yeah, uh, <laughs> Rost, Rost, if you're listening, you're out there and I'm going to come find you for right. the interview. So excellent. There you go. All right, a couple uh, more things here. Uh, fingers snuck in, and I didn't get a chance to explain it. <laughs> SLJO, which we're already going to have to be in the explicit category on this show, Sunshine. Yeah. So let me simply say that is the shitty little jobs officer. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's what everybody SLJ. gets when they're new. You know, you got to do yes. all the crappy stuff nobody else likes. And mm-hmm. then a NAVCAD is a Naval Aviation Cadet. Now, I didn't warn you I was going to ask you. Do you remember what that is? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that program, I think, was established, no kidding, back in 1935. And it was, th- it was there to entice civilians and enlisted folk to become pilots. 
So I think the, the, the entry requirements, if you will, you needed an associate's degree or two years of college completed. And then you had 18 months of training. And during that time, if you couldn't be married, and, nor could you get married during that training. And after that, once you got your training complete, you got your wings, you have a three-year commitment. And that, that program lasted all the way up until I think it was October of 93. So was that 93 minus 35? It's, it's about, I think it was about 58 years that program was around. So mm. it did a lot of good for the Navy. Yeah. And as I recall, you might have already said this, uh, you didn't have to have a degree necessarily like you normally would for the Naval Academy or ROTC. They can work that in afterwards. But yeah, it's not available anymore. I think, though, I still know, uh, who is it, Proton was a NAVCAD maybe? Anyway, I've got some buddies that are still hanging on from that old era. All right. Yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt you. One of my best skippers ever. So uh, Dennis... Call sign Laser Lazar. Oh, yeah. He was a NAVCAD. Yeah. And so Laser was an air crewman in helicopters and then went through the NAVCAD program, became a pilot, and was an epic F 18 pilot and skipper, just a all around great, great American. There I know I use go. that a lot, but he really was. Yeah. So <laughs> that's okay. Well, proof that you don't have to have a bachelor's degree to be a great pilot, but that is still pretty much the requirement these days, as we've talked about before. Oh, dude. Well, I think, I mean, gosh, that's pretty much everything on that. Uh, so, let's see. Yeah, do, oh, Patreon. Should we, uh, let's, let's hit on Patreon. Okay. What's going on yep. there? Well, so we have some new division leads. We have Richard Meredith, Will Hales, and Chris Wanacott, and new strike leads, Danny Cravello and Chris Murphy. Now, Sunshine, nice. as I alluded on the previous episode, 51, mm-hmm. we okay. will be restructuring Patreon effective August 1st. And the reason is, is the same reason that even though there are cars on the road that are successful and good looking, the mm-hmm. manufacturers still change them up every couple of years. And so we're going to do the same thing. We're going to consolidate down to fewer tiers. We're going okay. to uh, delete the three lowest tiers and we're going to offer more content and more recurring content. And it's just a way for us to just kind of clean up house a little bit, tighten things up, and also offer more value to the patrons who so generously support us. So we're really looking forward to the restructuring. Yeah, giving a, a nice good facelift, I would say. Absolutely. For sure. All right, Sunshine. Well, whew, this has been one or two, I suppose, very long episodes. What else is there this week? Hey, well, I just want to—I want to backtrack just a tad. That is that uh, when you guys mentioned the last F four to crash, that QF four out of Point Magoo. Uh-huh. So that, I actually knew that guy. Unfortunately, oh. he was an instructor of mine in Kingsville. Yeah, so he left behind a wife and I believe two daughters. So his uh, name was Commander Mike Callsign Storm Norm, and just so full of life, man. Just one of those—it's always yeah. tragic, but it's especially tragic the. the for the family he left behind, and he was just such a dynamic, good personality. So, unfortunately, he he lost his life in the uh, coming into the the break, if you will, there April twentieth of two thousand two. So, uh, my my heart goes out to his family. Indeed. Well, golly, I hate to end on a down note. Tell me something else. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what was, was epic. Last thing is an F four, ladies and gentlemen, F four Phantom reported by uh, our two great interviewers there. Our interviewee, excuse me, went up to 98,000 feet. That's right. 98,000 feet. So, dude, I'm pretty sure that's an astronaut call, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. He gets the little extra special wings. Yeah, exactly. Very (laughs) cool. Well, I know the F4 Phantom 2 episode will be among our leading 
topics here on the aircraft series. And Sunshine, once in a while, we should probably still look out for other things to talk about. I've got a buddy who was in charge of the SEER school. Everyone remembers that's the survival, evasion, resistance, (laughs) and escape. And another Mm -hmm. thing is everyone has been asking for, there's three different people by name our listeners have been asking for. One is Chip Burke. And he flew pretty much everything. He was a Top Gun instructor. He did an Hmm. exchange tour and flew the F-22. He flew the F-35. And he hangs out with the Echelon front guys. He's been on Jocko's podcast. And so I think there's a good chance we're going to get him here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Awesome. once in a while, we'll take a break from the aircraft series. And I can't even tell you what's coming up next, folks, because I don't know. Maybe it'll be Chip. Maybe it'll be a different (laughs) aircraft. But I'm sure it'll be good. It will. Flexibility is the key to air power. That's right. Well, as always, we'd like to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So until next time, what do you say, Sunshine? Let's get out of here. Let's do it. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line, 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget, share us with your network. Thanks for listening.